Exactly. You know, you could have your own little you know, squadron of Q ships roving around the high seas looking for anything with a Russian flag to make trouble for. <laughs> On this amazing topic, liberal and drive fly. I didn't, I didn't realize I had my hand up, but I was thinking of having Patrick Fox in the space. And I'm thinking like he, uh, Lishy Chansk and um, his outlook on the next month of battle. Ooh, that liberal, that one's tough. Because right now, everyone's repositioning and getting set for the next phase. What that phase looks like is going to depend a lot on both what the Russians think they can achieve and what the Ukrainians think they can hold. Um, I wrote a short thread about this a few days ago. Broadly speaking, the Ukrainians have three options. They can try to hold what they've got and reinforce it. They can withdraw, or they can try to counterattack to take pressure off that uh, that pocket and do some damage elsewhere that will force the Russians to suck away combat units in that area. The Russians, conversely, it, it really depends on how they see Sivir If they see it as a major victory that can be repeated, they'll probably be fairly aggressive, assuming that they have the numbers and, uh, and the artillery resupply to do so. If they view it as too high, they might do exactly what I think they should do, which is attempt to encircle Lysychansk and then just obliterate that pocket, which is, is my genuine fear. Because if you look at a lot of the open source stuff, a lot of the units protecting that corridor southwest of uh, Lusichansk itself are territorial. And that should scare the bejesus out of anybody who fully understands what that means. And if you don't, those territorial units, nothing against them, but they don't have the heavy weapons and the support to stand off large Russian attacks. They just don't. Uh, and so if I were the Russians, I would attempt to penetrate at those points that are guarded by territorial brigades. I would try to surround them and then I, the uh, the pocket Lusichansk, I would try to fully surround it and then destroy it. And that I'm sure that possibility is high on the Ukrainian Army High Command's list of things to worry about. So it, it's very, very fluid. I'm going to be watching it real close. Hey, Patrick, if I may follow up, uh, why are we not seeing the reinforcement of these uh, TDF forces um, on the front lines, the contact line? Um, is this part of the strategy to hold back the Russians, slow them down, but not commit to, you know, our best fighters on the contact line? Or is this just how the war is unfolding? I think it's a combination of that, uh, a scarcity of troops. And keep in mind, Ukraine is operating its own counteroffensive in the Kherson sector. So their bet, and when this whole thing started, I said this last month, their bet was they could hold the Russians in the east and attack in the south. That was their bet. And we're going to see how that bet plays out. Um, so I, I think it's a combination of both. It's we don't want all our best units face front to, toward the enemy getting shelled every day. And we have a lot of resources tied up down south trying to kick the Russians out. Uh, so and, and there's just a scarcity of troops. Their training pipeline is is just now spinning up to, to a point where it might be able to uh, exceed casualties. And we'll see what that looks like in the coming months. Do you think that the training that um, the, I think it was reported 430,000 Ukrainians with maybe former military experience um, or just uh, men committed to push back the Russians, um, how much time do they need to get online? And um, I understand that they're not going to have battle experience, but some of them may have, you know, they may be... um, veterans um what's your take on the ability of ukraine to mobilize four hundred and thirty thousand troops i mean even with minimal training that becomes an equipment issue uh small arms for the territorials were up until about you know six or six or eight weeks ago past couple months were critically were one of those critical shortfalls so it's going to depend on if they can arm them if they can give them a quickie spin-up training I mean, at the height of World War II, when we were doing this, we'd still have guys in training for a few months. And, you know, that, that, that's a long time when you're fighting it out with the Russians in the Donbass. A couple months is a long time. So it's going to depend on how much training that Ukrainians think they can get away with before they ship these guys to the front, whether or not they can arm them. And then whether or not, if they're, if they're refilling depleted units, that's one thing. If they're reconstituting a whole new formations, which is something they're eventually going to have to do, uh, it's not just going to be infantry. It's going to be artillery. It's going to be support units. 
And of course, that's a whole new level of equipment, of training, of uh, combined arms training, operating with with uh, multiple types of units, so everybody knows what they're doing and how to do it with each other. It, which goes back to a modern army is a complex thing to organize, and the Ukrainians are having to do it almost on the fly. I would say, assuming they just have enough rifles to put in people's hands and get them to refill units that have been badly shot up, even with recent veterans, you you probably want them in training for at least a solid month just to be safe. Uh, and that's guys that like just got out before the war started. The longer back you go, the further that's the more that's going to have to be. Uh, there, there's going to be a lag time, uh, and how, how long that lag time is is going to depend on the individuals being trained and how desperate the Ukrainian army is for more bodies, I think is the bottom line. Yeah, I agree. Thank you, uh, Patrick Fox, Colonel, Major General. I don't know your rank, but I'm just going to say, sir. Thank you, Liberal. We're all about battlefield promotions here on the Walter Report. So, uh, dry fly, go ahead. Uh, hello. Uh, the question I was going to ask um, is, why haven't we seen more insurgency tactics from the Ukrainians? From what I read, the Russians really still haven't consolidated, consolidated a lot of the areas that they've taken uh, from February 24th on. They, they did a really good job of, of ethnic cleansing the areas they held prior to February 24th. And so those areas have been flushed pretty much of anybody that wasn't already a, a Russian supporter. But in a lot of the areas that they're currently in now, they really haven't had time to, to flush it. And it seems to me that that when you're pressured on the line, like they are at Lusashank and Severodonetsk, um, the answer is, is to try to get people deep. And I mean deeper than, you know, the the MLRS will re- and just start making it difficult enough that the Russians have to occupy more of the land. And they, you just don't hear much about it. You hear a little bit in Kyrgyzstan. You heard some on the rail lines going over by Mariupol. They were blowing up some bridges and raising some cane there. But it got awfully quiet in the last month or so, something like that. Um, Did you what hear are your about thoughts that? on that? Did you hear about the Dmitry Slevachenko guy? Uh, which one? Is that the assassination? Yeah, he was the, the youth coordinator or whatever in one of the uh, contested he, areas. Yeah, uh, yeah I thought it was he, Kirsten, wasn't it? I would. I think it may have. I want to say it was um, somewhere in the north, but I'm I'm bad. I, I don't really cor- correlate these things to the geographic areas. A lot of times I'm so busy just consuming yeah, well, information. I, I don't they, really consult him. Kirsten's done a good job. I mean, I, they've done a hell of a good job. In fact, I was talking to, what is it, that um, Chuck Flake, Flake, Lager, was it? Flake? Far. Far, yeah. He, he when, when you had him on, he and I talked quite a bit about that, and he's, he said they're actually trying to tap down the, the partisan activity and insurgency because they want him to hold off until the offensive gets a little farther on because they don't want, they don't want those guys found too soon and, and, and flushed out. And the FSB is supposedly all, all over that town. But I'm thinking places like Zaporizhia would be really that whole area where there doesn't seem to be, there doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, the best Russian units. And I would think they would be really vulnerable. And it also appears like they have not consolidated that territory at all. So all the supply chains running through there, all of the areas where they have uh, garrisoned would be vulnerable to insurgent type attacks and really help take the pressure off the lines farther north and east. Thoughts? Yeah, that was Commander Chuck Farr. Yeah. Just, yeah to, he, you know, to give him, to give him the, the respect that the uh, military title deserve but, yeah i didn't know yeah. i didn't i mean i had trouble with his name i didn't know what his what his title or i didn't even know what his rank was but he was uh uh a seal team commander and he agreed i mean he says yeah insurgency is the answer but you got to do it right and i'm just wondering why um uh, we haven't seen more of it 
I I wonder if it's going on and we just haven't seen it. Uh, that type of stuff doesn't tend to have a camera cl- camera crew close by or you know somebody to document it. So uh, I think we get a little um, overzealous in our expectation of having real time info on some of this. Uh, I hesitate to use the word spoiled, um, but information flows so quickly in the modern era. I think we just get a little ahead of ourselves in what we expect on how quickly some of this information trickles out to us. And we're a little uh, over eager. Well, the point is, is that I think that with the, I don't think the Ukrainians are ever going to get enough weapons, as many weapons as they want. They're just not going to. And it's always they're always going to be facing a shortfall with respect to the pressures that the Russians can bring at a point of attack. Okay, and there are a couple of solutions to that. And one is you mass somewhere else like um, Kherson or um, what's the other city to the it, it is Izum. Is you 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 try to make an, an offensive somewhere else, but I think when you're undermanned in material, the other option is to is to use um, more guerrilla tactics, and I just think that we would hear about it if they were successfully doing it. Were you on this afternoon? Actually, I don't know that Mister O'Leary was on this afternoon. Uh, the other Ryan, Iowa Ryan, us. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't ask any questions because actually I was scraping paint. It was outstanding, um, uh, and he 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 gave a really really great account of what it's like in, in the training of the territorials. Did he talk? I, I didn't catch hundred percent of it. Did he talk? About he, I didn't press him on that, and he didn't really delve into the details. But if you go take a look at his uh, tweet history, I think you would be pleasantly surprised. I was. Uh, heart warmed to see that he has a very special set of skills and he intends on relating that very special set of skills to potential uh, guerrilla partisans in the near future there that's, was that's an, the answer i mean there if was you... an individual that popped on i think with an engineering background um discussed some arduinos and you know some raspberry pi electronics boards and the guy was saying hey could i front end do some work and send you some you know arduino boards or some circuits or this or that and ryan's response was please do not send me any electronic equipment the u.s government is already raising an eyebrow with the electronic equipment i procure on my own any efforts you want to offer and and to that end would probably better be directed towards people trying to get drones up and running in the country Um, but i think mr o'leary is very well uh, trained at wiring up some uh, homebrew electronics equipment and probably teaching other people how to do the same. It's it's not rocket surgery. It's just a little bit of soldering. Well, the, the, the answer is, is that if you read history, like in the Algerian uh, Civil War, the War of Liberation from the Algerian point of view, um, the French forces trying to trying to occupy areas, and they weren't on the front. They were just in towns and cities, you know, garrisoned here, there, and ever, they couldn't get a cup of coffee or a glass of wine without the risk of, of the cafe blowing up. And the pressures it brought on them eventually broke them. I mean, it, the, the Algerians never won a battle from what I could tell, but they won the war. And it's really time in my mind to, to take the battle deep into some of those places in Ukraine where the Russians are, think they're behind the line and re-educate them that they're not, that every inch of Ukraine is is the battlefront. And I just wondered why we just haven't heard more of that, because I think with the embedded, because you guys did talk a little bit about the embedded um, uh, and the other conversation you had uh, today about the embedded uh, reporters on the Russian side. I mean, those guys should all be targets, not the reporters, but those units. They the, Those stories should be getting back. Hey, Dryfly. I'm going to agree with you. Um, The highest level of partisanship is being played out in Kherson right now. Um, You have multiple assassination attempts of collaborators. 
I think there was one uh, assassination attempt that was successful. And um, Hirson is not acquiescing to occupation. And that's, to me, where the, the, the highest level of, of partisanship is being carried out. And I think Patrick may have something to say to that. Oh, I was just going to make make the comment. The uh, the colonial wars are a favorite topic of mine, and Dreyfus right to the ex- with the with one exception, and that would be something called the Battle of Algiers. And this is when the French, for exactly the reasons he was talking about, they couldn't sit down to have have a drink outside at a cafe without getting blown up by the FLN. They brought in a bunch of uh, paratroopers, and these guys were fresh out of Indochina, and they they had faced this kind of thing before. And so what they did was they quartered the city and they assigned a battalion to each quarter and they ruthlessly dug out the insurgents and they, they arrested innocent people. They tortured people. You know, this is all now public record. And many of them later came out and apologized for it, but they were brutal. It was probably one of the most brutal counter counter terror campaigns that, you know, anybody's ever seen. But the stink of it is it worked for the remainder of the war. There were no terror attacks in Algiers. There were no insurgent attacks in Algiers because the FLN inside the city was basically dead. Uh, so I would not, if this gets bad enough, I, 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 again, I want people to prepare themselves. The Russians are not above repeating that in their own way if, if this gets bad enough. Because that, if you're willing to kill and abuse civilians, that, that is a model that has been shown to work. I am not endorsing it. I am just telling you what the historical facts say. Well, I'm, I'm aware of that. And you, you have to decide that, you know, at that point, everyone is a, is a warrior. I mean, everyone is, is, is on the front. I mean, that's how the Vietnamese looked at it. And so it was, it was brutal, but Ho, Ho Chi Minh was prepared to, to pay that price for their country. Um, I don't know if Ukraine is, and I don't know if the Russians have enough of a conscience that it would bother them. Americans had real problems utilizing those kind of tactics. Um, French, maybe less so. But um, I'm not sure you have to be as, as impenetrated as, the, as in the Algerian case either. I mean, some of it can be hit and run. Now, granted, the Russians may turn around and then just erase the nearest city like the Germans did, okay? You know, they, they would get attacked somewhere in Poland or Belarus or wherever it was, and they would then, uh, the partisans would disappear, and then they would just go to the nearest town and just erase. Um, so I, I don't know if, it, if it's workable, uh, but a frontal battle that you never have the material you need isn't necessarily workable either. If Putin decides he's, cons- he's willing to just continue to grind up his own people for his, for his aims. I mean, we're, we're all expecting Russia to sometime just stop because they've had enough. What if Putin doesn't? I mean, that's the worry that everybody has. At that point, I think the only answer is you need to you need to chase the pain deeper. It can't just be at the front, even if it puts civilians at risk in some situations. At least that's the calculus I think the Ukrainians will get to. I think they're going to have to. Bernie, I thought you were supposed to be asleep. What are you doing back here with your hand up? Uh, well, I, I was sleeping. I was, uh, well, not sleeping, falling asleep here with the, uh, with, with, uh, all your voices there. Um, I, I came back up, there was something was said and, 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 uh, I, I just wanted to speak to it. Sometimes, uh, it, it's a little dangerous to draw, um, overly too much from historical precedent. Um, and, and I'm just going to speak to, to it directly just to make sure I, I heard it correctly here. Um, so I was hearing talk about letters of mark and reprisal, uh, whether you call it privateering or piracy. But I just want I just want to frame the argument just to understand this. I'm not disagreeing with with the method or, or anything like that. I'm not disagreeing uh, on the grounds of you, you should or shouldn't do it. But but let me just frame the problem here. So the Russian fleet represents 01 percent of global cargo vessels, 01 percent. OK, that's pre that's pre war since the war started that traffic assisted by by global partners has dropped to one sixth 
of its prior levels. So not the 0.1% fleet, but the total shipments, including uh, cargo vessels that were participating. So one-sixth of its pre-war level. So that means whatever they had is their pre-shipment, and I won't get into the numbers on it. They're at one-sixth. So the problem has been reduced to one-sixth. Okay, now let me just keep drilling this down. The United States Navy has 295 ships total period that's that's whether they're in port or on the seas um as having served um in a, in a time of increasing piracy uh global shipping is not what it was in the age of sail and the reason i say this is potentially dangerous is because of a couple of things here i framed what the russian shipping is global shipping is ninety thousand global cargo vessels ninety thousand Russia pre-war represented 0.1% of that, and Western partners have stopped shipping with Russia. And Russia port calls are down to 20 ships per week in all of Russia out of 90,000 total available vessels, 20 per week. So let me just keep putting this into further perspective here. So to ignore 200 years of a precedent or, or commercial trade or globalization or whatever it is, it takes more boats than we have already just to assist in the piracy efforts in the Gulf of Aden, the Somali coast, the Straits of Malacca, all of those areas as is. We are already in a situation where you have to assist in the Persian Gulf. The Iranians have tried to do this with different ships. But if I'm understanding this, we're trying to solve what is a very minor problem with the most bluntest of objects that would completely paralyze global shipping at all, make boats vulnerable, and do it beyond a capacity that we are in a position to deal with, meaning we don't have the ship's inability to do that. And oh, by the way, even if we did, we're taking our eye off the ball of, of what? Current missions and current strategy. So I think it's a bit far-fetched to use historical precedent to search for historical precedents and apply that as analogies or partial analogies into the current context. It's highly problematic and it's highly dangerous. And I'll even go into the origin of that story. The origin of that story, outside of the problem as I have framed it for you, is in a position to restore, some people believe, the U.S. Navy should be restored in its era and power and reach by virtue of the number of boats and the size of that Navy. Now, whether you believe in that or disagree with that is, clearly, if you try to turn to letters of mark or open seas piracy, you are putting out the smallest of matchsticks of a fire, and you are literally turning it into a global dumpster fire. And in that global dumpster fire, you will need a larger Navy. I think it's asinine, and I very rarely step in to offer an opinion, but this one is grounded in its precedent, and we should be careful about reaching back to take historical activities and to frame them as contemporary analogs. It's dangerous and it's reckless. Thank you. I think I was probably the one that used the word historical precedent, and I was only referring to something that happened at the outset of the current war. But I do take your point. And yeah, if we get into a tit-for-tat piracy war uh, between Russia and Western commerce, we're exposing ourselves greatly. Um, we are yeah. all we are already winning the war on shipping. Even if there's a remainder to be solved, you don't throw the entire bathwater. There are ghost fleet shipments ongoing. Uh, I believe the Iranians operate a ghost fleet, but I suspect the Chinese do as well. There are ships that don't sail around with their transponders on that are now traceable through satellite imagery and and machine learning and all the new technology we have within the last 20 or so years. Um, I wonder if we couldn't police those a little more heavily. And I think existing 
structures that are already in place would probably do the trick. We don't have to uh, arm any pirate fleet to police the waters and the, the seas that are already there. Um, I don't know where we are on order of hands. I'll go Ben, Paul, Liberal. John, get in line. Sorry. Um, sorry, I'll, um, I'll pass for this time. Sorry. Okay. Dr. Paul. Hey, thanks, guys. Um, so I'm following up on, you know, Pat's uh, discussion about the, you know, the ability of Ukraine and Russians to regenerate forces. So, Pat, you know, there's reports about one to two weeks ago that Russian replacements are only getting three to seven days worth of training before being sent to the front with a, a rifle, effectively. So overall, you know, my, my bet really is that the longer this war goes on, favors Ukraine more and more they're going to be stronger better and i'm not overly concerned with the the arm you know arming the ukrainians yes with the heavy heavy armaments tanks um you know high mars etc but but the united states is getting ready to replace all the ar-15s um the m240s m249s with a six hours uh contract so in my view i mean there's going to be ample stock to arm these infantry at least the infantry uh we can talk about high mars and uh, you know heavy weapons sure that's going to be an ongoing issue but i think it's an important point because pat you said met numerous times and i agree with you you know the ukrainians need to trade space for time and that's really what gets them to over the finish line to, to ultimately win the war um you know it took the u.s 20 years to lose uh afghanistan as an example and this kind of dovetails into the uh, insurgency discussion a little bit. You know, the Ukrainians are using the right tool for, for the, at the right time, you know, and I don't think a broad insurgency is the right tactic up in Kupiansk or Bochansk, deep behind enemy lines. There's not ample 152 millimeter artillery shells everywhere like there were in Afghanistan and Iraq for the insurgency to perpetuate and sustain itself. So that's like the key missing part for doing a widespread insurgency ongoing with an active, very conventional conflict. So I think there's a time and a place for it. And, but the Ukrainians are doing unconventional warfare broadly across, across Ukraine, you know, Ukrainian special forces and, and things like that. They are doing these types of things, including IEDs and otherwise. So, just wanted to tie that in, but Pat, I'm curious after hearing that, and I'm not sure if you're aware of that report of the Russians only getting trained three to seven days before being sent to the front, how that changes the calculus overall. Yeah, I heard something about that, but I had, I hadn't seen the specific report on it. It, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, I think the, that that is the saving grace here. This is a meat grinder, but it's a meat grinder for both sides. Patrick, what can you train a soldier to do in three to seven days besides dig his own grave? I mean, very, very little. Uh, I can get through. I can get someone through basic weapons qualification. You know, maybe some. You know, just the absolute most rudimentary kind of tactical movement. But that's about it. I, I mean, that that's the kind of thing they used to do during in this in like late forty one through forty two when they were just piling up bodies in front of the Wehrmacht. That that's <laughs> that, that's bad. That's real bad. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree. I mean, it, this is not going to end well for Russia in either case. And I think there's a, we, you know, in the space and as we talk about the current events, which is the purpose, but we're kind of like missing the forest from the trees. Um, personally, I think Donbass is not that strategically important overall. Um, so I think going to Pat's points he's made over the weeks and months probably by now, trade space for time. And so they just need to really slow down the overall pace of the withdrawal, say we can conserve as many forces as possible, wait for the new arms to, you know, and, and the Ukrainians to get trained up on and deploy these new new forces, new new weapons, et cetera. And, and then meanwhile, I think uh, the UK said they're going to, and you, you talked about this earlier, Pat, I think I'm going to botch the numbers, but was it 10,000 troops every four weeks, every 12 weeks, something like that. So, yeah, I think it's just about buying time. It's going to be painful for all of us to watch, especially for us who are watching minute by minute, like myself. Um, and, but overall, I think the longer this goes, that does not favor Russia in any way, shape or form. In finance, you could probably speak to the financial implications of Russia being able to sustain itself uh, for, let's say, let's call it, do you, what is the probability Russia can sustain itself for five or even 10 years and not to mention 20 years like we did uh, with Afghanistan? They can grow food, but as time goes on and their atrocities continue to pile up, the 
outside pressure on the German firms that are keeping their machine lines afloat will grow. Um, their industry, even with that, is literally burning down, and they don't make the means of production in Russia. So their ability to keep their industrial machine to support the war going is zero. They just happen to, not zero, their ammunition factories supposedly are still going. Their ammunition isn't the most modern. It's not the most accurate or targeted, but volume matters, and they're still able to produce that stuff. Um, their tank factory is closed as best I've heard. I haven't heard any updates to the contrary. Uh, I'm not a guy who buys satellite images, so I'm not checking that way myself. But assuming that's that's the case, yeah, and that's before we discuss the fact that sanctions are breaking their, are massively harming their economy so that you're looking at a major recession. So their own Ministry of Finance is suggesting 17% down uh, economic growth year over year. I view that as the least it's going to decline. That would be worse than the entire Great Recession. And that's their own numbers. So this isn't even like us suggesting it. Goldman Sachs suggests it could be as bad as 30% decline this year. So I put those as the range of numbers you're looking at. Um, and I don't think it's going to bounce back. You know, As long as they're at war, it's just going to keep going down quickly. So financially speaking, as the war drags on, it is dragging their economy downwards and pretty nastily. That said, there's clearly pain being caused outside of Russia for, as a result of the war, and that is part and parcel of Putin's, or Russia's broadly, it's not just him, their strategy, right? Which is shut off the gas, try to make the rest of Europe push Ukraine towards a crappy peace because they don't want to deal with higher gas prices and inflation. That is like a very clear part of their strategy and approach. So these are both going on. They're definitely feeling way more pain than we are at this point. Um, but no, their, their economy is, is, uh, is, you know, going, doing a face plant right now. And I love every second of their pain. Um, but just one thing to all, you know, kind of to juxtapose against that dynamic is, okay, the Ukrainians, um, how much financial assistance have they received and are receiving, which Russia technically does not have and most likely will not have from China or otherwise. And by my count, if the Ukrainians keep sustaining their current uh, ammo expenditure for the for artillery at an average cost of five thousand dollars per shell, which is high, but nonetheless, if they protected that out over a year, that's uh, about a nine billion dollar just an ammo budget. And what the the Russians are spending sixty what was it ten fifteen twenty thousand shells per day. Um, so there's this big attrition financially and otherwise. Russia cannot sustain this longer. So again, I go back to my key takeaway, which is. Russia cannot sustain this. Uh, the longer this goes on, only favors Ukraine because of the vast support economically, financially, and militarily that the Ukrainians are getting. So in my view, this is a win. Um, I said at the very beginning, my first tweet about the war was a stalemate would be like the optimal outcome at first. And I still hold to that. Like they just need to wear the Russians down into where they ultimately have to capitulate. If Patrick Fox is still here in the space. Um, I would love to hear his perspective on the fact that uh, Lisey Chance may have to be compromised. There may be a retreat, tactical retreat, check, and um, his opinion of that. Yeah, Lerb, I don't know if you, were, you heard it, maybe not earlier. Uh, I, I would be making plans if I was the UAF command in OPCOM used to bug out of there now. Uh, I'd be preparing to do it now. I'd be preparing a secondary line of resistance. I'd be preparing fallback points. And as soon as it looks like the Russians are set, you leave. You don't give them the opportunity to repeat uh, server down. You bug out. And ideally, you want to draw them out to a point where they're beyond their own support range and then punch them in the nose. Uh, but, yeah, I, I would be making plans to do that right now if I was in their shoes. I would not leave my people to get, you know, schwacked from three sides by Russian artillery. Yeah, I appreciate that, brother. Agree. Sorry about that. I think you guys just heard me whistling at my dog. Uh, who was next, John? Uh, thank you, Ryan. Uh, there were two things I wanted to mention. In regard to Lysychansk, uh, I mentioned this during the update, but based upon the sources that John. I've seen. Yes, liberal. And it, Anyways. He's probably whistling at his dog, too. Don't worry about it. We'll get to him in a sec. <laughs> anyways, uh, as I mentioned during the update, based upon the sources that I've seen regarding Lysychansk, 
Um, sources that I've seen indicated that the bulk of Ukrainian forces bugged out from the city probably, you know, 24 to 48 hours ago, and that most of the, re- you know, virtually all the remaining units are, you know, special operations groups and rear guard, you know, elements to, you know, cover the withdrawal, and they're probably moving to a defensive line I somewhere east of I think we need to realize that Patrick Fox is in the space, and we need to ask questions and uh, take advantage of his experience. Indeed. Go ahead, John. Did I not come through for any of that? I heard you, John. Oh. Now the audio got weird. Mic check. Yep, loud and clear. We hear you. And for um, John, do you have a question for Patrick Fox? Yeah, I, I was I was making a statement regarding uh, Lisa Chong. Is liberals audio audio going on him? I think I think it might be. My my audio is good. Um, why am I hot mic? Nope, you're fine. Go ahead, John. Um, anyways, that, that was, I just wanted to say that thing about Lisa Chance. The second thing was, um, I believe I had read that as of last year, anyways, that there were five Ticonderogas slated for decommissioning John? sometime this year. Can, can you all hear me? Yep, go ahead. Um, does anybody know the status of those? Because if that's still the plan, I, I think it probably might not be given the invasion, but that's still the plan. Um be interesting to see if we can't find those uh right, so home. the void while john is uh sorting out his uh john i think you yeah. got an audio issue liberal john's audio is working fine can you not hear him uh no my apologies. nope you're fine turn on your uh captions or maybe just disconnect and hop back in uh happens frequently i've done the same thing uh no worries go ahead john uh and liberal we'll get you cycled right back in yeah, Rose no worries. Is... My apologies. Nope, you're fine. No, the, the question just was if anybody knew if the five Ticonderogas that were slated for decommissioning this year, as of last year anyways, were still slated, you know, to be actually decommissioned this year, if that's been postponed, because, you know, if they are still going to be decommissioned, it would be a great opportunity, as I kind of referenced earlier, to try and uh, maybe find a way to sneakily get those in the Black Sea via submarines. No, those are cru- guided missile cruisers. Got it. Lots and lots of T-Lambs. Uh, obviously, I'm not the person to ask that question because I didn't even know if we were talking about boats or ships. Um, if anybody has an uh, answer for that, I'm happy to let you uh, chime in. Uh, let me get Rosalie back up here. I know she was added a minute ago, and I think she dropped back down for some. Oh, I did also have one piece of good news. Um uh, Ukraine, uh, Operational Command South released an update uh, about an hour ago. They confirmed they hit Snake Island on June 28th and destroyed a number of assets and killed uh, approximately 40 Russians. Couldn't have happened to a better bunch. Um, I think we had Dr. Paul and Rosalie. Yeah, so this is, you know, John and, and Pat give a comment on this, but and I'm no open source intel expert at all by any stretch, but, you know, I found this new firms thing, you know, by NASA. And if you look at the fires um, over the last 24 hours, vast majority are on the Russian side of the line of contact. And, you know, Alchevsk is hit hard in the last six hours. Izium is just a mess. The whole area over there is on fire, it looks like. And back behind the lines uh, near Severodonetsk and Rubizny um, as well. And, you know, what are you guys' thoughts on that? I mean, to me, it seems like these ammo dumps um, by the Russians have gotten that have gotten destroyed over the last week or two. I think uh, the number language mentioned was 24, and that was a day ago or two, and so it's probably even more. Um, but do you guys think that is having an impact? And what's your explanation for all the fires on the Russian side of the lines? So briefly, I I, I look at firms fairly frequently. So in Alchevs and in, in Alchevs specifically. Those fires ignore them. As far as I can tell, there has been a continuous fire burning in an industrial area there for like five years or something. There is one part of the city that constantly has firms returns going back more than a year. I don't know what's causing that, um, but I so just ignore that part. Um, there's also a continuously seems to be a lot of fires um, north of the line of contact behind Russian lines, specifically north of the Seversky Donetsk River. You know, around Krimina, Lyman, and all those areas, there just seems to be a lot of forest fires there that have been going on for quite some time. I don't know if those are just pre-existing fires, you know, from shelling from a while ago that should have never been put out. Um, 
there's just a lot of random fires that are quite far back from, you know, the line of contact in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Rosalie, I think you're next. Oh, hi, guys. <laughs> um, I have a question for Patrick. Um, you know, I watching this kind of incremental um, upping of our support for Ukraine is obviously like frustrating. And I, I understand, you know, the diplomatic element. My question is, is there something we're not seeing or is there a reason why we aren't engaging engaging in the same not necessarily unethical tactics but in the way that Putin gave you know the people's republics kind of like a veneer of legitimacy like why can we not you know sell them a plane for like a dollar you know um, you, you know, just ridiculous prices and like, or like sell them some mercenaries. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like, why are we abiding by all these rules when everybody knows that we could end this quite quickly? And I've really begun to question the more that we see the corruption in the military, uh, how much of their, uh, their, nuclear armory is is active because it requires expensive and regular maintenance so i'll let you so let me reframe that a little bit why aren't we engaging in aggressive asymmetric thinking is that about right i think um the way that i think that i think that the the face of the way that war is fought is really changing we're seeing you know these wagner groups and all these things around and people are using influence and i guess i'm basically saying like we need to adapt. Are we adapting? The short answer is no, we're not. Um, it's a combination. At, at, I'm going to delve a little bit into politics here, only, but only as much as I have to. Uh, it's a combination of political will, leadership, or the lack thereof. And you just have a lot of people, both in the U.S. defense establishment, in NATO, and in, in the associated allied militaries, who aren't used to just thinking outside their, their conventional modes of operation and putting forth plans, or at least putting forth plans that are eventually approved by leadership, which, again, gets back to the leadership issue, that allow them to do things that they wouldn't normally do in ways that they wouldn't normally do. Them. Uh, again, if people read my Let's Fuck With Vlad series, this is all about that. It's all about doing things unconventionally that assist Ukraine and in ways that the Russians can only really complain about but can't really do anything to stop because we're not doing anything directly to Russia. Um, and there are things there, there are things we could have done. I argued at the start of the war, we should basically empty out the armories of the Eastern flank allies and, and push all that crap into Ukraine and supplement it with Western production. I mean, this, I, I was arguing this before the war. Uh, I was arguing, giving them anti-ship missiles before the war, just to make sure that the, the Russian black sea fleet couldn't do what it, did right, right up until the mosque was saying, uh, you know, contractors, mercenaries, all this stuff. This is the kind of stuff we used to do when we were serious about A, being a world power and B, going up against other major world powers, but having to do so indirectly. And we, at least the United States, no longer has leadership that understands the necessity of that. And they certainly don't understand how it's done. Uh, I wish I had a better answer for you on that one, but they just don't get it. They, um, a lot of them, they, they don't understand the nature of the problem. And that means they certainly don't understand the possible solution. When have we done that without mixed results and horrible PR blowback when things go somewhat sideways? Oh, we haven't. But I'd point you, to, the Russians used to be very good at this. Not only were they supplying MiGs to the North Koreans during the Korean War against UN forces, they had their own pilots flying them. Wearing North Korean markings, we used to intercept radio chatter in Russian. Yep, as we were going up against them, and we all knew. And the Russians just never admitted it. They never admitted it happened. I mean, if you look at the Biden administration, and I will pick the Biden administration just because that is my government, and I follow them most closely. I, I know other governments have done this too. They can't stop themselves from just trumpeting to the skies every little thing they do. They can't stop themselves. It's almost it's almost pathological. John Kirby, basically, who was the uh, spokesman for the Pentagon up until just recently, just moved over to the White House, basically had to tell the the intelligence agencies to shut up when they admitted helping target Russian generals. I mean, when you have the spokesman for the DOD 
telling the intelligence guys, shut your mouths. That's a problem. There is an operational security issue there that is not being addressed. And, you know, the, the, just in terms of the Patriot, we've been talking about Patriot half the night. During the Vietnam War, Russian crews were manning surface-to-air missile systems while training their North Vietnamese counterparts while shooting at American bombers. And they just never admitted they did it. There are well, ways to do this stuff. I think we were talking about two different things there as well. Um, I, as I understand it, the issue with us supplying them with aircraft is the pilots. And like you'd referred to in North, excuse me, in, in Korea, I was about to say North Korea, but in Korea, they were supplying both pilots and aircraft. Um, I think we're just not ready to have any pilots shot down in Ukraine and paraded in in front of a you know court in Moscow like we had the U two pilot and his name escapes me at the moment, um, but Gary the, Powers. Just, Gary Powers. Yeah, that's right. Yep, yeah, Gary Powers. We don't need another Gary Powers situation. And if we're not willing to supply them the pilots, the airframes aren't going to do them a whole lot of good. They're also going to need the mechanics to keep those maintained. So we need to source them more MIGs, if anything. Uh, that well, I right. have but no issue. Also, with. literally base them at air bases right across the border and build up a supply depot there and have them defend their own air base to prevent its destruction. I mean, there are ways you could do this if you were willing to run risk. And I think that's what you're getting at, Ryan. And nobody's willing to run risks. Nobody. Yep. Well, and I was referring to the, the PMC situation. Uh, we had some mixed results in some, you know, terrible global press because of a couple of Blackwater incidents and they had to change their name and, you know, totally rebrand themselves and oh, yeah, I'm not talking about getting yeah, and his thugs in here. No, the way you do this is you do it exactly like we did the Flying Tigers for the Nationalist Chinese. You take a bunch of air crew and their ground and their ground maintainers and you, and you say, look, guys, here's an opportunity. We're going to let you officially separate from the service. You're going to keep your date of rank. You're going to keep your seniority and you're going to crew it all while you're gone. And we're going to pay you a hell of a lot of money to officially join the armed forces of Ukraine and fight for the Ukrainians. So you're going to get combat experience. Your career is going to be kept on track and we're going to pay you a boatload of money. And oh, by the way, you're going to get real world experience fighting the Russians. And then you get the Ukrainians on board and that's how you have a, sh a shake and bake air force. But nobody's willing to run that risk. That's kind of the solution right there. That's the kind of thing I'm thinking of, because I do understand, like, we can't get in a situation where we have soldiers that, like, if they get captured, that we need to intervene. They need to be under Ukraine's uh, forces. Um, the other thing that I wanted to ask, Patrick, is, you know, we've had a lot of uh, different high-ranking military officers, and they have had kind of varying understandings of information operations and the importance of it. And I guess, do you feel like the military is at all responding, adapting, aware that this is going to sink us if we don't start taking it seriously? You mean the U.S. military? Yes, yeah. Uh, in some cases, yes. In some cases, no. Uh, I, I, if people follow me, unfortunately, the British just decided to downsize their army again, which is a little insane. From my point of view, the U.S. Army is failing to meet recruiting goals. So is the Navy. So is the Air Force and Space Force on the reserve component side. And this is all at a time when the Ukrainian war has reemphasized the casualty intensive nature of modern warfare. Um, obviously, President Biden just announced today that we're going to be shifting the headquarters of a, of a revitalized U.S. Fifth Corps into Poland. And we're going to put a brigade on rotation in Romania which is going to pump up our numbers in Europe, over 100,000 troops. So there's a there's a realignment toward Europe, but we're failing in some basic things. We're not increasing the size of the force. We're not getting the recruiting done that we need to to maintain our force, which is a real big problem. Uh, I can't emphasize that one enough. And there's, there's some genuine strategic muddling between Asia and Europe. And there's a big fight going on right now at Pentagon State Department. And they're trying to figure out which one's going to have primacy. Everyone says, oh, we got to pivot to Asia. we got to pivot to Asia. But obviously this kicked off. Now there's a whole new emphasis on Europe. And there is really no, there, there's really no notion from the current administration that you have to make the Europeans shoulder more of that burden 
while the Americans look more toward China. Well, so, we've got an order of operations here, though. I think Jingu has has chimed in on that a lot. China's watching this. Uh, that's North right. Korea's watching this. If if we if we don't handle this now, I I feel like this is an Iraq Afghanistan situation, and I I don't know if you'll uh, appreciate my analogy there, but. I feel like we took our ball off, our eye off the ball in Afghanistan for a while to go uh, pursue other things in the sandbox, and we, you know, got mired down in two different situations instead of one. And we're looking in the rearview mirror and talking about stuff that doesn't involve Ukraine again. But I think focusing on the Ukraine issue right now will serve us tenfold in the future as far as issues that we may or may not have to face down in Asia. Well, right, I, I tend to agree. Russia and China are both threats. China's the bigger one, but Russia's the immediate one. Russia's given us the opportunity to take them out effectively without having to deal with China at the same time. We'd be fools not to take that chance. But at the same time, you have people like Secretary of the Air Force Kendall, who's just promulgated a plan for the Air Force under his tenure that is basically smaller and less capable. I mean, that if that's his plan while looking at the current situation in Ukraine, where as far as the air war goes, I don't know what he's thinking. I honest to God don't because Thinking the air stinger missiles work too damn well. No, it's not just that because it, that was a little bit of a joke. No, I know, but you know, especially in in, in any kind of Pacific campaign, if, if you're at all concerned about that, the air component is going to do the lion's share of the fighting, especially in the early days. Um, to say nothing of of what might be required for a land war in Europe, so the notion that we need a smaller, less uh, less robust, less capable air force, I, I I think I don't know what he's thinking. Uh, I'll, I'll be charitable and just say I don't know what he's saying. So, um, Rosalie, I, it's a mixed bag, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. So, some people are taking some lessons from this. Some people are trying to pretend it's all going to go away and nothing's going to matter, and it, we can all go back to normal. Um, I just have one really quick last thing, and then I swear I'll stop talking. Um, so, I I am somebody who is rather disappointed in kind of the bigger stakeholders in NATO. I don't think that they necessarily should have the clout that they have. My question is, is there's discussions about like France and Germany not not letting Ukraine in, and, and my thought is, is that's the most battle ready force. They can teach us about IOs. That's what's priceless. So, like, why do we have these countries that are contributing much less in so many ways and then uh, wanting to block a country that could contribute to our knowledge base, I guess? Well, on the subject of getting them into NATO, nobody's going to vote for that. And it's not just France or Germany. It's us. It's the Brits. Nobody's going to vote for that until this get, until this is over for one very simple reason. And it, it's the same reason that we've been dealing with since 2014. Any nation that is actively occupied by a foreign power, as soon as they become a NATO member, they can immediately invoke Article 5 and demand the alliance assist them in ejecting foreign troops from their territory. So what what that means is Article 5 is the mutual defense article. So basically what that means is 